0: We pick up our journey through 2 Kings with chapter 13. Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, takes over in Israel. Hazael comes against them and actually conquers them. The people cry out to God and God gives them relief. My particular translation, the New Revised Standard, says that a Savior arises for them. This Savior is an unnamed person. Evil, however, persists. There's a sacred pole to Asherah, a fertility goddess of the Canaanites, and the result of the idolatry and evil persisting is that the army is decimated and Jehoahaz dies. In verses 10 through 13, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, comes to power in Israel. He reigns for 16 years. His name is also spelled as Joash, so in some of the times when it's refers to him, they drop the E-H from the first part of his name. It would really make deciphering all these people and trying to keep it straight if they would spell their name in a single way, but they don't always. I hope the chart that I have shared helps. They war with Amaziah of Judah, and then we see the death of the prophet Elisha. We see King Jehoash coming to Elisha while he is sick. He calls Elisha his father. This implies a close relationship between the king and the prophet. Elisha tells him to um, throw arrows out the window as a sign of victory over Aram and then tells him to use those arrows to strike the ground and that that will be a picture of how strong the victory will be. He strikes the ground three times and the prophet criticizes him for it. He says he should have struck the ground five or six times. I'm left to ask, how would Joash know this? Um, I think he doesn't, Uh, but Elisha is testing something in his personality. Uh, The This will limit the number of times that they are able to successfully repel the foreign invaders who come against them. In verses 20 through 25, Elisha passes away, but his prophetic power continues even after his death as a hastily buried man is reanimated. Um, These are the kinds of things that it, it is a reference to the power of God that is residing in a person who has a connection to God, who speaks to God, and who ministers to the people. Hazael does in fact attack them and oppresses them, but doesn't completely destroy them, and this is because of God's graciousness, according to the scripture. Hazael then dies, and Ben-Hadad succeeds him, Joash is able to reclaim the towns that Hazael had taken from them. Three times, Joash is able to defeat them. This is the number of times that he struck the ground with the arrows. So we are seeing that the prophecies of Elisha are coming to pass. That's how a prophet was known as being a true prophet, is if what they prophesy comes to pass. Moving into chapter 14, in verses 1 through 6, we see Jehoash's son, Amaziah, succeeding him in Judah. He's 25 years old and is going to rule for 29 years. He does quite well. He's not completely up to the standard of King David, but he is much better than others have been. He, however, does not remove the high places, so he tolerates some worship of of idols among his people. Um, So this means that they will still experience attacks from people because they're not being entirely faithful. We see um, Jehoash's son Amaziah killing the two servants who killed his father. This is acceptable vengeance according to the Mosaic law. However, he does not go after the children, so he restrains his vengeance. He doesn't completely wipe out the line. We know from looking at the Mosaic Code that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a call for vengeance. It's actually a call to restrain vengeance. We only repay as people have done to us under the Mosaic law. In other words, if someone hurts you, you don't kill them. If someone kills a member of your family, you don't wipe out their whole family. You simply kill the one who murdered you, the member of your family. We, however, being under the law of grace, are encouraged by Jesus to turn the other cheek. So it's not even about equal vengeance. It's about letting God be our avenger. So we see that, Jeho- that Amaziah is trying to um, follow the Mosaic law and not be vengeful. In verses 7 through 22, we see that their successful military exploits and foreign policy is enacted. Um, they try to form an alliance with Jehoash of Israel, and when they are rebuffed, they go to battle against them. Judah is defeated. They tear down the wall around Jerusalem and plunder the temple and palace treasuries. Jehoash then dies, and his son Jeroboam succeeds him. Amaziah of Judah lives for 15 years after Jehoash of Israel dies, so he outlives the king who defeated them. In the end, however, he will suffer the same fate that his father did. He is assassinated, and his son Azariah will come to succeed him at sixteen years of age in verses twenty three through twenty nine Jeroboam the second succeeds his father Joash in Israel. He reigns for forty-one years He follows his namesake um, his namesake was the first king of Israel after the country divides. He restores some of the territory. That have been lost. This has been prophesied by Jonah in the book named for him. Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Isaiah will all engage in their prophetic ministries during the reign of Jeroboam II. 41 years is a long reign. However, only Isaiah and Jonah are mentioned here in the book of Second Kings. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, show Azariah reigning in Judah. He will reign for 52 years. So that is an incredibly long reign. He is a mixture of good and bad, as so many of them are. He will serve the Lord their God, but he will tolerate idolatry. Um, he will get leprosy and have to isolate himself. His son Jotham will succeed him. In verses eight through 16, we go back to Israel. Um, it's as though um, we can almost see the caption saying, Meanwhile, over in Israel, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, comes to power, but he'll only reign for six months. Shalom will kill him and take the throne. This is the end of the reign of the fourth generation, which was promised to Jehu. So again, we see the things that have been prophesied actually come to pass. Shalom, however, is only going to rule for a single month when Menahem will kill him and take the throne. We see that the throne is becoming more and more unstable. The people are becoming more and more violent. There's more and more coups. Um, The further we go away from God and from God's plan, the more unstable, the more violent, and the more insecure the people can feel about their lives. Menahem is especially brutal as a ruler. In verses 17 through 22, we see that things continue to deteriorate in Israel. Menahem engages in idolatry. He is forced to pay tribute to Assyria, and he pays that tribute by taxing the people, which is going to make him incredibly unpopular with them. Nobody likes taxes. Verses 23 through 31, we have Pekiah. Um, these names get difficult for me to pronounce, but he takes over after Menahem uh, dies, and Menahem was his father. The throne is incredibly unstable. He reigns for two years before his captain stages a coup, and his captain's name is Pika. Pika reigns for 20 years. He is evil. Um, Assyria takes several cities away from them. This is simply a result of them not being under the protection of God anymore because of their sins and their evilness. He is assassinated by Hoshea, who takes the throne. Verses 32 through 38, we make another swap back over to the other kingdom. Over in Judah, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, is crowned king. He's 25 years old and is going to reign for 16 years. He is a faithful king, but he continues to tolerate idolatry. This will mean that they are attacked by Razan of Aram, or Syria, and by Pekah of Israel, whom we will see form an alliance together. Moving into chapter 16, in verses 1 through 4, we are introduced to Ahaz, the son of Jotham, who becomes king in Judah. He is 20 years old, and he will rule for 16 years. He will be the epitome of evil kings. This will be the high point of evilness and idolatry for Judah. He engages in human sacrifice to the Canaanite god Moloch. In fact, he sacrifices his own son. That's what's meant by the phrase, he causes him to pass through the fire. In other words, he burns his son, his son alive. Other kings have been called a mixture of bad and good. Ahaz is not a mixture. He is entirely bad or evil. Now we see that the moral and religious decline that has been occurring in Israel is now being matched by the moral and religious decline in Judah. So first, the kingdom splits and they both deteriorate. Nobody is staying faithful to God. In verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that judgment for this comes through external attack. This has always been their predisposition. If you're not faithful, you're going to be attacked and suffer for it. Aram and Israel come against Judah and siege the city of Jerusalem. They avoid complete destruction, but their weakened state emboldens the kingdom of Edom to attack them. So now you have three surrounding countries who want to see their defeat. Um, so this causes them to beg Assyria to help them. And they they get their help, but only by paying them tribute to do so. Um Assyria does this by going over and attacking Damascus, which is Aram's capital. They kill King Rezin of Aram, and this does, in fact, distract them. They have to pull away from sieging Jerusalem. In verses 10 through 18, we see that King Ahaz of Judah is impressed by the altar that he sees in Damascus. He's so impressed by it that he orders a duplicate to be made and brought to Jerusalem. So the signs and symbols of the worship of the true Israelite God, our God, are removed and the symbols of this pagan worship are installed in the temple. It makes me wonder why the priest Uzziah is tolerating this. Why does he go along with it? Is he a priest in name only? He just does whatever the king says and really has no loyalty and faithfulness to God or is he scared for his life? Does he realize things are so out of control in Judah that he can't do anything about it? We move into chapter 17, and in this chapter, it's we're really going to see a summary of Israel and Judah's sins, including the judgment that they receive at the hands of God, and that judgment is exile. They actually lose their countries. They cease to exist as a separate country that is self-governing in any way, and the people get carried off into exile. In verses 1 through 6, we return to Hoshea, who is the new king of Israel, the son of Ahaz. He's going to rule for nine years and be evil. Assyria will defeat them and turn them into a vassal state. When Hosea tries to rebel by getting Egypt to help them, Assyria finds out about it and imprisons him. They then besiege them for three years and finally carry off the Israelites into exile in Assyria. We're now at around 722 BC. Verses 7 through 18 affirm for us that exile is the result of their sins. They were warned many times, but they were stubborn and would not listen. There's a variety of pagan worship, including human sacrifice, and these verses really just become a depressing catalog of their behavior. Verses 19 through 23, we see that Judah is no better than Israel. Though initially preserved for David's sake, their insistent insistence on remaining in their sin and not repenting will ultimately bring them into judgment as well. Verses 24 through 28, we see that Assyria resettles the area with outsiders. Those outsiders bring their own faiths and their own worship practices. There's The lion attack is a really interesting episode. Having lost the heart of the people, God is no longer protecting the people, but God is going to protect the land for future faithfulness. So even in the midst of all of this destruction, we see that God still cares. This is not what God wanted to happen, but it is the um, inevitable consequence of disobedience. At least this is the way that the author of Kings and um, the chronicler as well will portray it. The Assyrian king, in a really interesting episode, sends back a priest to teach the people how to worship the Israelite God. Um, And it really becomes ironic that the Assyrian king is going to be more faithful than the Israelite king has been. However, we see in verses 29 through 41 that this is not actually true faithful worship. We're simply going to incorporate worship of Yahweh Um, our God, the Israelite God, into a pantheon of gods. This is not acceptable. We are to worship the Lord our God and our God alone, not um, to fold our God into other forms of worship. So syncretistic Israel, who has engaged in both worship of God and other pagan gods, is now replaced with an entire syncretistic people. So things continue to deteriorate. It moves away from God. And chapter 17 ends at what is a really depressing low point for Judah and Israel there. Um, But with this chapter 17 ends, and we shall have to see what chapter 18 brings us as far as what happens for the peoples of Israel and Judah.